Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. Once again, I am your host, Christina McAteer, and have the pleasure of welcoming our guest, Catherine Vestness. How are you today, Catherine? Another great day with you, and once again, I so appreciate being part of Money Minutes. It's really fun for me, and I feel like we're doing a lot of good things for doctors. Excellent. Because our goal is to give our listeners some experiences and education that is not commonly part of the traditional medical curriculum. Today, we're going to be discussing asset protection in the setting of medical liability. What have you got for us, Catherine? Definitely a hot topic. It's definitely a cause of concern for so many uh, doctors. So let's talk a little bit about this. As you know, we work with, gosh, I think it's over 500 um, doctors and dentists from coast to coast. And as I think about it now, I can count on one hand the number who have actually been sued. I mean, maybe it's six, but certainly less than 10. Wow. It's so nice to hear those percentages because the industry speak is that it's not if you've been sued, it's when, making it sound like it's an absolute inevitability. But that doesn't appear to be so. Absolutely. And I've heard that many, many times, but that's not been our experience with our own physicians. Now, I will say a lot, and this is not our topic today, but I think a lot of physicians could avoid being sued uh, if they handle their patients better. Yes, managing the patient experience and the patient's expectations are so key to the doctor-patient relationship. When it comes to the financial side of this, every one of the cases I can think of where the doctors got sued, with one exception, I'll tell you about that in a minute, they were covered by medical malpractice insurance. So I could not think of a single time where the patient plaintiff went after more than the med mal insurance. So that should be a great sense of comfort, too. So statistically, if that happens, it's pretty rare that that actually happens. Those cases that you're speaking of, were those when the physicians were actually employed, or do they occasionally happen after the employment has concluded in the tail part of the malpractice coverage? They were all employed, but they weren't necessarily employed by the employer where the event took place. So in in each of these cases, they were very lucky. They were all covered by insurance. One of these was um, a doctor who specialized in difficult pregnancies. I'm sure you can remember off the top of your head what this subspecialty is. I felt really sorry for him because he had been sued twice while he was still in residency. My heart goes out to that poor resident. Exactly. So the good news is uh, make sure you've got good medical malpractice coverage. Make sure you've got tail coverage from previous employers. Residents and fellows don't have to worry about this because they're covered during residency and fellowship. So they don't, I don't ever see a need for them to have a tail coverage that covers their residency and fellowship period. So statistically, it's very, very unlikely that they're going to get sued by a patient for more than their medical malpractice insurance. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying let's be stupid here. The one case that med mal insurance didn't come into play was this huge anesthesiology in Minneapolis. Uh, the president was, was one of our clients. And years ago, the uh, certified registered nurse anesthetist sued them. And it was a very ugly, ugly, long drawn out case. I didn't represent them during that time. So I don't have any details about it other than what's in the newspaper. Now, those kind of cases are not covered, obviously, by medical malpractice, because that's a whole different uh, theory that they were suing on uh, in their employment contract. And that could have been pretty painful, and they were very concerned about it at the time. They ended up settling it. They didn't hurt those doctors too badly. So I think some of the things that doctors can do now, 
Obviously, you want to make sure your medical malpractice is up to speed. Almost always employers provide that for our physicians. Believe it or not, once in a great while, Christy, I'll see an employer that doesn't do it. And so the doctor has to get their own coverage. Uh, we don't provide that for our clients, but I know a good firm that does med- mal coverage. If anybody needs that help, I'd be happy to refer them over. So that would be step one. That's a very good point to make sure our listeners are well aware. As I recall you saying in a previous podcast, if you have to bargain for medical malpractice insurance independently, it often is much more expensive than if you have the ability to bargain as a group. I think that's true, but a lot of it has to do with the specialty. You know, obviously, high-risk pregnancies, are the, the premium for those mal- malpractices are probably a lot higher than a psychiatrist, is my thought, you know, or a family med doc. So a lot of it has to do, as I said, with your risk of being sued. Brain surgeons obviously are going to have a much higher cost of their med mal. I suspect it also has to do with your personal record. I would assume if you have a series of lawsuits tied to your name, that doesn't bode well to your insurability. Right. And in that case, you may not even be able to get coverage. I should say individual coverage. Because when you get group coverage with an employer, they aren't asking specifically about this. So you wouldn't be eliminated from group coverage, but on your own individual. And I do have one or two clients that actually have group coverage, and then they went out on their own and bought their own policy on top of this, which you know, wasn't horribly expensive for them because the expensive part, of course, was covered by their employer. So they had a little bit for doing their own private policy. And that's something um, you can certainly look into. Is that a general recommendation? Or is that really for the high-risk specialties when they would really need that additional benefit? I think that would be most beneficial in a high-risk specialty and if you um, maybe own your own small practice there. Those doctors obviously are paying for it themselves. If you're thinking about they might want to go into their own practice, they might want um, or move from one practice to another, one small practice to another, then they may want to consider it in that situation because those small practices may not have enough coverage to make the doctor feel comfortable, so they may want to supplement it. So when you're negotiating your contract, would you accept the amount of malpractice coverage that your employer is offering, or would that potentially be a negotiating point where you would really advocate for yourself and try to get more? Well, that's a really, really good question. Pretty much it's on the when it comes to med mal insurance, it's a take it or leave it. Your employer has already negotiated something with their insurance company. They can't change that just for Dr. McAteer. They'd have to change it for hundreds of other doctors that are, you know, with the same employer. That's not going to happen. I could see a rare case where they really wanted a doctor badly. You might get the employer to provide additional coverage for you. Once again, it'd be a private policy. I've never seen that happen, but there's no reason you couldn't potentially negotiate that. Or more likely, you just go out and buy that on your own in the marketplace if you felt like you needed it. So I have seen certain coverages um, that I didn't think were enough. So there's a big hospital in Rhode Island, and I can't remember the details recently, but the coverage was like $3 million annually. I'm making this up because it's been a while since I've looked at it. And I thought $3 million for every nurse, every doctor, you know, every medical assistant or whatever in that entire hospital for a year was not nearly enough coverage. Because what happens if you had some cases at the beginning of the year and they blew through that, they settled them out, they're $3 million, your cases at the end of the year, there's nothing left in the medical malpractice bucket. 
So in that situation, you're dependent upon the financial strength of your employer. Well, it's one thing when it's a big, gigantic state-owned hospital. It's another when it's a small medical clinic. So the idea of there being no money left on the medical malpractice policy is absolutely terrifying. And the idea of having to finance a medical malpractice lawsuit on your own seems like it would be astronomical. You're right. It could be crazy. But honestly, once again, I haven't seen this happen. I know it's there and on on the surface, it looks like a big risk. But as a practical matter, I honestly have not seen it happen. So if a plaintiff were considering a lawsuit, I suspect they first meet with their attorney. And from there, they come up with a specific dollar amount. How does that dollar amount compare to what resources you have in your medical malpractice policy? Can you give us any insight there? Right. So they're likely to get an attorney who's very skilled in plaintiff work. And one of the first things they want to do is in, in what we call discovery is to figure out what are the limits of the policy. And because they know they can settle for up to the amount of the limits of the policy, anything over that is going to be darn near impossible. And a lot of the parties, too, also know that we're just negotiating. So that that'll come out into in discovery, and it'll be part of the negotiation process. As you know, very few of these cases go to trial. Actually, I did not know that. I suspect that's a little bit of reassuring news. Do you have any percentages of how many of these complaints actually translate into going to trial? I don't have any statistics on this. It's kind of outside my area of legal expertise. But most plaintiffs' attorneys and most plaintiffs would rather have a quick settlement. We know that the, the most we're going to get from this is $10 million. Let's have a quick settlement. Maybe we take eight and a half or nine now, and we get it within the next six months or so, and we're done, as opposed to a long, drawn-out trial, which is going to be much more expensive, and who knows if we get that at all. So they're more likely to go with a sure thing. I can definitely see the benefit of settling early. In fact, I was just talking with a colleague who had the misfortune in being involved in a very long, drawn-out lawsuit. It lasted nearly 10 years, and she was commenting about the transitions that her life has taken with her children in elementary school and now in middle school over the course of this lawsuit term and the amount of psychological stress she endured during that time frame. I can't even imagine. It, it's really horrible. And I feel sorry for those doctors. They need to get into a Zen-like state and realize it's going to be okay. It's going to turn out, it's going to turn out fine in the end, but it is a long drawn out process that most people would want to avoid. Now, with that said, when it comes to patients, my gut sense is that more and more employers, doctors are trying to not have those crazy patients hold them hostage for on spurious lawsuits. And I'm sure you've probably seen all sorts of crazy things. And more likely, I think in the future, you're going to be seeing these employers say, no, this is ridiculous. We didn't do anything wrong. We disclosed everything we could. There's no guarantee we're going to have a good outcome. Take us to court. And I, I believe it or not, I think that's actually a good thing because it's going to mean that there's going to be less spurious lawsuits and it's more likely only the good cases are going to be going forward. That does sound reassuring and perhaps in some ways restores the checks and balances on the system. Exactly. Now, what I'd like to talk about next in this context, though, 
is something that is much more of a risk that a lot of doctors haven't thought about. As I said, we talked before about patients suing you for a, a medical mistake. I think doctors are much more likely to be sued in other contexts because the public thinks that you're worth so much more money than you really are. And uh, so let me tell you a couple of stories here. Once again, this did not happen to me. It happened to a colleague. Um, he was in the hospital waiting to speak to his uh, to his doctor clients. They were actually two residents. And he gets a text message saying that they're going to be late for their meeting with him. And what had happened was there was a small fender bender in the parking lot. Uh, his clients, married couple, both docs, both residents. And uh, Mama, who was on the elderly side, had been driving and she banged into the doctor's car. And once she saw that they were wearing the white coats and they were a doctor, um, things took a turn for the worse. And over time, she thought their doctors, they're worth a lot of money. So she wanted to sue them in this crazy little fender bender. I'm so sorry to hear that, but I can't say I'm surprised at all. Not surprised at all is exactly right. Because as I said, the public sees the white coat and they're going, oh, you're worth so much money. Well, you and I both know that's not the case. They had student debts up the wazoo. They probably had no money in their checking account. You know how it is when you're a resident. Uh, but that's a big, big problem. So one of the things we advise our clients is don't make a big deal about being a physician. I mean, some states, if you've got MD on your license plates, you can pretty much speed any place you want. You're not going to get picked up with a speeding ticket. But it also advertises to the public that you're a doctor. So I'm sorry, I've got another horrible case. Uh, this happened to another client of ours whose parents, one was a dentist, one was a pediatrician, and they were targeted by a scam artist. I may have mentioned them before in a previous podcast. And what the scam artist did was they followed mama around uh, until she got on the freeway. And then they pulled in front of her and staged an accident where they slammed on the brakes. So she had to rear end them. Usually the person that rear ends the other is considered at fault. And of course, their insurance would have to pay. Um it probably would have bankrupted this couple, but fortunately for them, they found out that this was a scam artist. That's all just so interesting. And I can certainly say from working in the emergency room, I've had the experience where patients come in reporting that they were in a motor vehicle crash. And when I asked them what the concerns were, what brought them to the emergency room, their response is that they were instructed to come in on behalf of their attorney and have some x-rays so that that is on file for the lawsuit. And of course, that raises all sorts of red flags in my mind. Totally. Now, how can a doctor protect themselves in this situation? Because it wouldn't be a med mal uh, suit there if you were, you know, in this phony car accident or even a real car accident. So the number one way you can protect yourself, fortunately, is really inexpensive. And that's getting something called an umbrella insurance policy. And this sits on top of your autos and your homeowners or renters insurance policy. So for instance, most auto insurance may have a limit of $500,000. That's all they're going to pay. But if you accidentally run in to dad, who's got six little boys in the backseat and they're on their way to soccer practice, you could see where that entire, if it was a bad crash, could go through $500,000 pretty darn quickly. So this would be some surplus or additional coverage on top of that. And I think this is really important for every physician, even I would have residents and fellows maybe get small policies. The good news is it's incredibly cheap. So a million dollar coverage might be $10 a month. It's really, really cheap. 
So as I get older doctors and they've got more wealth, we want more umbrella coverage. So if they've got wealth of two or $3 million, then maybe we want um, an umbrella policy of $5 million to cover them. It could be very, very helpful, all sorts of crazy situations. So uh, let me tell you, tell you one. I had a doctor who wasn't born in the States and was a hospitalist. And he hired this crew to come and trim his trees. And I mentioned that he wasn't born in the States because I think if he had more of a local cultural knowledge, this would have made more sense to him. And I'll explain as I go along. So he's got tree trimmer uh, and a two-story tree with an electric saw up at two stories, trimming this tree. And the tree trimmer falls out of the tree into the ground with this saw. Doctors at home at the time, he rushes out, sees this guy on the ground and calls the ambulance and sends him off, and the and the tree trimmer ends up being in the hospital for a couple of days. I didn't hear the rest of the story on how bad the injuries are, but I figure if you're in the hospital a couple of days nowadays, it's got to be, you know, somewhat severe. So my question to him is, do you have an umbrella policy? He goes, what's that? No, of course he didn't have an umbrella policy. I go, well, you do understand you're at risk here for getting sued by the tree trimmer. He's like, I didn't do anything wrong. Why should the tree trimmer sue me? And it was like he hadn't even connected with the dots about what the current legal system is. I said, you're going to get sued because you've got the deep pockets, because you're the doctor, because you're the only one that's got any money. He goes, well, why doesn't he sue his employer? Well, hello, his employer is probably a band of three or four people. Who knows if they're in the United States legally or not. If they're, in not, if they're not in the States legally, they can't even be insured. And most small companies like that wouldn't even have insurance on their own employees, even if they were in the United States legally, and they could get coverage for them. He's like, oh my gosh, they don't have insurance coverage. I'm going to be next. So that's the kind of thing that $10 a month would prevent that kind of stress. I'm saying I do that all day long. Definitely agree with you there, Catherine. And the example that I'm often quoted is if a delivery person comes to your house and for some reason trips or slips on some ice maybe that's out in the driveway, that is when the umbrella policy kicks in. Would you agree with that example, Catherine? Exactly. That's why you want that. And sometimes even identity theft can also be covered by that. That's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought about the umbrella policy in that circumstance. I'm glad to know that benefit applies. Exactly. So I've got another doctor's story. Once again, not one of our clients, but he had rented his house, doctor had rented his house out to his sister and her family, and they were having a party on the deck, and the deck collapsed, and his nephew, his sister's son, broke his leg in the process of this. She ended up suing her brother, and I don't think she really wanted to sue her brother, but she had to in order to collect under his umbrella policy. So it's that kind of situation that it could be very, very helpful. And I think that's a far greater risk, frankly, than having a patient sue you for more than your medical malpractice. Excellent. So an umbrella policy is a must for this modern life. How do you determine the extent of the policy and how much coverage it should offer? I would say kind of your age and your net worth. So if you are a resident fellow, young doctor, and you've got a negative net worth because you're, you've got student debts or other things, Yes, you can still have a claim against you, but it would be mostly against future income. So in that case, maybe for a resident fellow, 500000 or a million dollars is enough coverage. And then once you're in attending, you may want to up it from a million to two. And once again, as you get older and your net worth goes up, you'd want to keep it up so that it's something more than your net worth. Excellent. I think that's great advice, Catherine. 
the other question that comes to mind is, I know a lot of doctors are thrill seekers and tend to race motorcycles or perhaps have fancy race cars. Would an umbrella policy apply to any of those activities, particularly if you shared equipment and someone was injured using your equipment or any of those fun lifestyle adventures? Tell us, can an umbrella policy protect you there? Yeah, that is a really good question. I've never checked with that. But if you are involved in that, so let's say that you've got a boat and you're taking friends and maybe people you don't even know for trips in the boat, you'd want to talk to your property and casualty insurance carrier and make sure that accidents or whatever would be covered by that. Great advice there, Catherine. And in that same vein, if you did have some material possessions such as that, And in the event that you did suffer a lawsuit, what would be at risk? How would you know which of your assets were vulnerable because of that suit? That is a really good question. The answer to that varies from state to state. I have to look these numbers up, so don't quote me exactly on this. I think in Rhode Island, the limit is $300,000 in equity in the home. But that's going to vary in certain states. Florida may be one of them. It's an unlimited equity in a home. So the reason I was thinking about Florida was there was a famous case um, some years back where this wasn't a doctor, but person was wanted to go bankrupt. And before they went bankrupt, they went down to Florida and they bought this huge million dollar house. They go through the bankruptcy proceedings. And then at the end, what do they have? They've got a house worth a million dollars that escaped bankruptcy. And then they sold it and they were able to protect some of their assets. Certain states have got a bigger home ownership equity and others do not. So once again, check with your state. You'll want to know that. You could probably just Google this. Be very, very fast to do that. Um, I had a psychiatrist who had a million dollar house and he paid it all off. By the way, in the process of my conversations with him, he had dropped his homeowner's insurance, which covers whether the house burned down or things were stolen. And his wife is sitting in the meeting with me and was appalled that her husband, the cheapskate, had not insured this million dollar property. So anyway, he got homeowner's insurance, which is another kind of insurance. In his case, I suggested, look, you've got a million dollars worth of equity in this house, Uh, anything over the 300 mark in his state. So 700,000 of that could be subject to a credit, any type of creditor. What I suggested to him was he get a home equity line of credit, which is a lien against the house. He didn't actually access access the credit. He didn't actually borrow the money, but it shows up as a lien. And so it would therefore protect him from creditors going after the equity. Now, this is really important because plaintiff's attorney has gotten so savvy. One of the things they'll do before they decide whether they want to sue you or not is they're going to check your financial resources, which you can pretty easily get just on the internet nowadays. So they'll know whether you own a house and they'll know whether there's a mortgage against it. Wow, that story really surprises me because I would dare guess that almost anyone would say a million-dollar home is a sizable asset and therefore worth protecting. (laughs) Well, he certainly did after his wife and I got on him, so that wasn't a problem. So it's now protected against fire and theft and earthquakes, which would be your homeowner's insurance. Um, And he's got this umbrella policy, which I thought was also valuable for protecting it. So anyway, that's the home. Uh, So yes, they can go after homes. Once again, I've never had that happen to any of our clients ever, but it's, it's, it's a potential there. Now, if you've got a 401k or 403b, those are protected at a federal level and you can't go after those, generally speaking, for creditors. 
IRAs are slightly more risky because they're not protected by the same statutes. But once again, I've never had any plaintiff go after a client's IRA. Now, they can go after your brokerage accounts. So if you've got money that's in your name or joint with your spouse uh, or bank accounts, there will be some exemption on a state-by-state basis, and any amounts over that could be subject to uh, the plaintiffs garnishing those amounts. And when you use the term creditor, are you talking about specifically affiliated with a lawsuit or do you mean creditor of any type, specifically if you defaulted on a student loan or credit card or something of that nature? Well, I'm talking about both, but they can't actually garnish or go after those assets, whether it's home equity or a brokerage account um, or other assets, without a court order. Okay. So it could be that you have to go through an entire lawsuit and you have to get a ju- the plaintiff has to get a judgment and then they have to take that judgment and they have to enforce it. And there's a whole set of rules for doing that. It takes years, frankly, to get that, through, get that far. So just a minute ago when you mentioned brokerage accounts, would there be any element of protection if you had your spouse's name in addition to yours on the brokerage account or does that not necessarily help you? I would say usually not if it's a joint asset. So the, and that's an interesting thing with if you like partnerships, because in general, in a partnership, you're responsible for the entire debt. So there may be eight doctors and together they buy a million dollar piece of equipment. They each sign off on the note. Right. In theory, they're not responsible for one eighth of a million dollars. They're responsible for 100 percent of a million dollars. So if seven of those doctors default that eighth doctor could be responsible for the entire amount. I'll just have to say no thank you to that one. Yes, <laughs> which is also a really important reason why you've got to be very careful on who you go into business with. So then the other question that frequently comes up is if people were to put assets in an LLC or some other type of corporation, how much protection does that offer you? Well, I would say it depends. So putting your brokerage accounts in an LLC is the tiniest of speed bumps. Eh, I don't think it's really going to do too much. Ditto with the with the house. Um, there are certain kinds of trusts that you can put your assets into, whether it's a house, whether it's brokerage accounts or what have you. Um, but generally, those are not effective on asset protection strategies because you have to what we call cut the strings. You can lose control over this. And when I explain to clients how much they're going to lose control, they they don't want to do that. They don't want to put their assets in the hands of some independent third party that they have to go to when they want money for a new car or a trip to Arizona. They want to be able to have that control. So honestly, once again, I've never had a client do that. If I had a fabulously wealthy client, uh, this is probably a doctor who didn't make their money just practicing medicine. Maybe they inherited family money. Then we would probably do a much more complex asset protection strategy where we would try to be setting up offshore trusts and the like. Uh, but to be frank, even in that situation, I explained to them, this is not bulletproof. And what we're trying to do here is set up enough roadblocks and make it so difficult that either um, no one sues you because they don't, they can't look, go online and figure out you actually own these assets. Or if they do sue you, it becomes so difficult for them to try to get at the assets that we, it's easier to settle. Catherine, I find that so very interesting as for years I've been told that if your assets are in an LLC, this offers you a very high level of protection, but it turns out they may not be as protected as you think. 
Is that correct? That's generally true. There's going to be, obviously in the law, there's going to be a lot of exceptions. So for instance, if we had a client, and I don't have any clients right now that are doing this, but let's just say they owned a lot of apartment buildings. In that case, I would recommend that we put each apartment building in a separate LLC. And the reason is you don't want the slip and fall on apartment building number four to be able to go after assets in LLCs one, two, and three. You only want them to be able to go after the assets in number four. So it sounds like basically you're saying you want to break up your assets such that in the eyes of the law, it's a singular asset and therefore not as much monetary value tied to it rather than grouping all of your assets, which would then put them in a more vulnerable position. Is that correct? Exactly. I'm sorry, much better stated than I did. I'm the one that went to law school. So yes, we're trying to limit their ass, uh, their vulnerable assets to this one particular pro- property. Now, the reason this is a difficult thing for a lot of doctors is in order to ha- have these separate entities, um, they have to have separate books and records for each of them. They have to have separate minutes. They have to have separate tax returns. There's a whole bunch of stuff they have to do or what's called in, in the law, we can quote, pierce the corporate veil. In other words, we can say this really wasn't a corporation. It was really Christy operating in her own behalf. Therefore, we can look at assets way outside this little ones that we've tried to capsulate and go after all of her assets. So it seems like your accountant would be the best one to help you set all that up. You're right. Your accountant is going to be the best one. Or sometimes you'd have your attorney do it because every year they'd be sending you forms to sign to go, no, we're really operating like a legitimate business. But I want to let you know that it increases the hassle factor and it increases the expense because you're going to have additional accounting fees. You may have additional attorney's fees, depending on what the situation is. And you've got to kind of weigh that against the probability of actually being sued. Well, that is a lot to think about, Catherine, and I guess running yourself through the mental rehearsal of the different scenarios and weighing the risks of benefits would be the best way to make that decision. But looking ahead, taking a question from our audience, if you were to be sued, is your vehicle at risk? Would that potentially be an asset that's vulnerable? Well, once again, yes, they can go after vehicles depending. Uh, Once again, state law is going to make a difference here. Second of all, does it have a loan or a debt against it? Because they can only go after equity. Uh, Most states will allow X amount in um, vehicle equity that's exempt from creditors. Okay. So I guess you have to know your state laws and decide how much equity you're going to place into your vehicle. What about simple savings accounts? I would assume those are quite vulnerable and wide open to a lawsuit. Your thoughts on that? Those are going to be vulnerable, yes. But once again, we've got some sort of statewide exemption that's going to protect at least a portion of that. Now, I will say one of the mistakes I see doctors thinking is, well, they're going to wait until they get sued, and then they want to put things in trust, so they want to put them in other people's names. And honestly, that's considered fraud. Uh, Could end up in jail doing that, so you don't want to do that. Uh, The time to get all this straightened out is now before you get sued. So if you are an older, wealthier doctor, then yes, I would certainly suggest that you talk to an attorney and let's come up with a real solid asset protection plan. It may be very involved, may include offshore trusts, depending on what your situation is. If you're a younger doctor, I wouldn't be too fretful about it. I'd make sure that you've got good 
malpractice at work. Supplement that if you need be. Make sure that you've got umbrella coverage. All right. Well, that sounds like some really good first steps that we can take and hopefully will help us allay our fears and anxieties as we think about the possibility of a lawsuit. And perhaps that's what keeps us awake at night. But thank you for the advice. Any closing thoughts, Catherine? Well, I do have two closing thoughts. Um, One is a side one I should have mentioned earlier. I've had a number of doctors come to me and say, shall I put my, and then fill in the blank, house, car, practice, whatever, in my spouse's name. And this is always a really difficult conversation for me because, frankly, a lot of it depends on how solid is the marriage, which is not a question I feel comfortable posing to most of my clients, right? Because the last thing you want is to put this asset into the spouse's name, get divorced a year later, and the spouse goes, well, hello, it's all mine, right? You've just created a ton of problems with you in a divorce. So assuming that you've got the very, very solid marriage and that's not going to be a problem, it usually is not helpful to put assets in a spouse's name. And it can really throw havoc in an estate plan and with estate planning taxes. So before you go to those kind of measures, once again, I definitely have you talk to your attorney and kind of look at some options and see what makes sense for you. That's perfect information, Catherine. And I'm so glad that you brought it up. In a similar vein, what about wills and trusts? If you're trying to save some assets for future generations, are those considered vulnerable as well? Oh, that's a great, another great question. So when we set up trust, there's numerous different types of trust, which frankly would be another great conversation for us to have down the road. We can sometimes set up trusts that have what's called spend thrift provisions. What that means is, um, if Christy and Vin set up a trust for their uh, adorable three kids and you put in spendthrift provisions, which says if one of the kids has got creditors or whatever, they can't go after the assets of the trust, which is a great, great situation for the kids to be in. The problem is it's almost impossible for you to create a spendthrift trust for yourself. So you couldn't put your own assets in this trust once again, generally speaking, there's going to be a few exceptions and have it avoid your creditors, but it's something that you could do for your children. So that would protect your own assets if you were being sued or would it protect the asset if it belonged to the child and the child was being sued? Help me understand exactly how that works. Because it's almost impossible to do it for yourself. It would only protect your children from your children's creditors. So once again, our older doctors that are that are listening to this really need to be thinking about this because they might have the 25-year-old child who is not that good with money. So they may want to set up their inheritance to go into a spendthrift trust so that th- out of the trust is paid things for medical costs, medical insurance, maybe education, Uh, crucial things, housing, that kind of thing, but that the creditors could not go after the trust for other expenses. Excellent. So a lot of details to really think through there, but I guess it's something that you should really work with a lawyer on so that you can protect the asset and think about how you want it to be spent either by yourself or on behalf of your children. Exactly. So that kind of gets to my summary, what I'm thinking about. The number one thing is I really don't want doctors to panic about this. Getting sued by a patient is happens, but it's remote. And there's things you can do to protect yourself 
don't lose any sleep about that. Just make sure your medical malpractice coverage is adequate. Um, number two, I think you're more at risk, as we said, for just the general litigious public. You can protect yourself there with um, umbrella coverage. Cheap. Get this. Put it on your list of things to do this weekend. Call the people that sold you your auto insurance and see what you can get there. And then thirdly, if we want, if you need a more complex solution, if you've got more wealth, then it's probably time to sit down with an attorney who really specializes in this area and try to craft a plan that's good for you, good for your kids, and protects your assets. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Catherine. I think that's a lot of great information. I now feel relieved in that potentially a lawsuit is not an absolute inevitability and Perhaps there are ways that we can protect ourselves from that. I've also come to believe that maybe a little bit of debt isn't the worst thing in the world. I sit before you with student loans and still a mortgage, and perhaps that offers me some benefit as well. (laughs) Who knew those student debts could be such a protection, right? (laughs) There you go. So, Catherine, once again, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate your expert advice and insight. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for forwarding us your questions. Please continue to do so, and certainly we look forward to having you join us next time. I'm Christina McAteer, your host, and thank you for joining us on Money Minutes for Doctors. Take care. It's a cash. Grab that cash with both hands, then make a stash.